Welcome to Reimagining the Internet from the Initiative for Digital Public Infrastructure at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. We're talking to researchers, techies, activists, academics, and journalists about what's wrong with the internet and how to fix it. I'm your host, Ethan Zuckerman. Welcome, everyone, to the third day and the third panel in our week-long effort to reimagine the internet. We're thrilled uh, that you're joining us today, and, and I hope we have a lot of folks who have, uh, were with us for the first two days. Today, we're going to have a conversation about one possible avenue for promoting competition in the social media market and perhaps addressing some of the pathologies in online discourse. And we'll be talking about interoperability, the idea that the walled gardens of Facebook and Instagram and Twitter might be healthier if they were forced open so that their competitors uh, or perhaps just their would-be but unwelcome collaborators could interoperate. First up, we'll have Corey Doctorow. Corey is a science fiction author, activist, and journalist. I'm sure he needs no introduction to most of you here. He works for the Electronic Frontier Foundation. He's an MIT Media Lab research affiliate, a visiting professor of computer science at the Open University, and a visiting professor of practice at the University of North Carolina School of Library and Information Science, and he co-founded the UK's Open Rights Group. Corey. Thank you very much, Alex. It's, it's lovely to be here. Thank you for everyone who's attending, and thanks to the Knight Center for having us. Uh, I want to start by talking about why I think competition is important here. Uh, and, and it's different, I think, from the kind of axiomatic reason that we say, well, competition might solve our problems. Uh, I don't favor competition because it makes markets efficient. I don't favor competition because it enhances consumer choice in that kind of trivial, I'd like it purple and not blue sense. I, I favor competition because I, I favor self-determination. Uh, the right to live your life the way that you want to, the, the, the right to uh, exercise the judgment that you have about your immediate circumstances that other people don't have, uh, whether that's product designers sitting in potentially your distant past, making choices about how your product should work, or moderators or executives operating in real time and trying to make those calls that ultimately we ourselves are are best situated to know what kind of rules we should follow. And you know, the the problems of self-determination run up against the problems of of content moderation. Uh, the the norms and the uh, uh, barriers and the register that people want to speak in and the way that they would like to be addressed are incredibly variable and context dependent. And, you know, while it may be true that Facebook or, or Twitter have structures that make them unsuited to being the final arbiter of those judgment calls about the lives of, in the case of uh, Twitter, hundreds of millions of users, or in the case of Facebook, billions of users, I also think that it's unlikely that anyone is, is situated to make those ultimate calls, that ultimately you want uh, users themselves, either individually or in communities, to be able to make the decision about what they see, what they don't see, how it's ordered, what the rules of the road are for discourse, and so on. So while it's true that there are users who are defended by the content moderation policies of, uh, of the platforms, you know, there are probably people who face harassment who benefit from Facebook's real names policy because their harassers don't want to have their real names. There are also users who are exposed to, to uh, bad conduct as a result of that um, kind of 
uh, paternalistic model where where someone else gets to make the call for you. You know, there are people who fear harassment and are forced to use their real names and who run up against it. And, you know, ultimately, I think that the right place to decide what is and isn't the barriers to our privacy or the the minimum standard for our privacy is not in Facebook's corporate boardrooms, not even in a kind of notional Facebook that is pro-privacy. I want the decisions about what the minimum standards for privacy are to be made in uh, um, a democratically accountable governance forum, uh, preferably uh, a legislature, uh, I want individuals to have private rights of action to enforce their privacy rights rather than depending on attorneys general or, or district attorneys to bring cases on their behalf and so on. That ultimately what we need uh, in terms of standards about privacy and, and harassment and, and other bad conduct, those minimum standards should be set democratically and, and not by e even the best tech executives we can imagine who are far from the tech executives we have today. Now, um, it, it, it seems to me that if we had lots of federated platforms, that individuals and communities could make those calls. Now, not every individual is capable of designing their own rival platform or even hosting their own rival platform that plugs into one of the existing ones. But I, I, I do think that the history, particularly of marginalized groups using the internet, tells us that there are lots of toolsmiths who would like to serve those groups, including members of those groups. And that, you know, the, the thing that we decry often about technology, that it's a force multiplier for the individual choices of a coder who can make some code and then project it over millions of users, are, is also the potential benefit that if, if there's a toolsmith who suits your needs, who's a volunteer or whom you can afford to hire or who is among your group, then that toolsmith can provide you with a platform where you can set your house rules and you can uh, uh, maintain that platform as well. But there's a problem that we run up against if we imagine that kind of pluralism, if we imagine a, a, a reversion to the, the, the internet that we once had before it all turned into what Tom Eastman calls five giant websites filled with screenshots of text from the other four. And that's that there are these powerful network effects that drive people to join dominant platforms. Uh, you, you know, Facebook, every time you, you someone joins Facebook, it's a reason for someone else to join Facebook because they want to talk to that person. And ultimately, these network effects turn into a kind of mutual hostage taking where uh, I'm on Facebook because you are and you're on Facebook because I am. Neither of us would be there if both of us could leave. And, you know, in theory, we could have this kind of... Um, international everybody leaves Facebook day where we organize that, you know, next Wednesday at 3 p.m. we all resign our accounts and go somewhere else and reconstruct our social graphs. But that uh, that kind of collective action problem is, is not historically precedented. It's not really how we get from uh, from from one dominant platform to another. Instead, what we see usually is the subsumption of one platform into another through interoperability, where, where a platform opens a little portal to another platform, users use that other platform, gradually users trickle over, and uh, as they trickle over, eventually that first platform becomes less important and and, and ultimately gets swallowed up by, by something new. You know, we, we had um, Lexmark sue uh, static uh, controls in the early 2000s for making printer cartridges that worked in Lexmark printers. Today, Lexmark is a division of static controls, right? That's that's one of the paths that we've seen historically. Um, and, and I think that the lesson we can learn from that historic pattern is that we, we tend to over-determine the role of, uh, of network effects and underappreciate the role of switching costs. 
that if the switching costs are low, right? Like if you can leave Facebook without leaving your friends behind because you can go to another platform that has better policies, then the fact that Facebook isn't where you want to be, but it's where you have to be, ceases to matter. In fact, Facebook's walled garden ceases to be a walled garden. It, it becomes a kind of all-you-can-eat buffet for would-be Facebook competitors who can turn up and find all the Facebook groups called, I hate Facebook and I wish I could leave, and, and drop a message in saying, you can leave Facebook today using my service and still stay in, in touch with all your Facebook friends. Now, there are many proposals to make Facebook and other dominant platforms interoperable. Um, we see mandates. So in the, in the um, uh, 2020 Access Act from Senator Warner, we see uh, uh, an idea that we would have a mandate that would um, require Facebook to expose certain APIs. Uh, Warner has this very canny insight, which is that Facebook already has these interoperability APIs that it uses to meld uh, Instagram and WhatsApp, these, these uh, subsidiaries that it acquired through anti-competitive mergers, and that these APIs are uh, likely to be as good as an API can be because there's no reason for Facebook to, to subvert those APIs. It want, like its business priorities are aligned with making those APIs robust and full-featured. And so Warner says, let's make them expose those APIs and we'll create a layer of fiduciaries. We'll create a layer of like trusted third parties who will sit between Facebook and would-be interoperators and make judgment calls about whether or not the would-be interoperator is going to uh, toe the line, whether they're going to whether they're going to um, be good for users or bad for users, whether they're another Cambridge Analytica or whether they're say NYU's engineering school wanting to open up a portal of Facebook so they can monitor its political ads and make sure they're not. Uh, uh, secretly engaged in paid political disinformation, which is the thing NYU's engineering school does now, uh, but Facebook is threatening to sue them over it. And these fiduciaries, these trusted third parties, they're, they're a kind of unwieldy answer to, to uh, a lot of internet problems. You know, at EFF, I've lost track of the number of times people have shown up at EFF and said, look, we've got a solution for the internet. What we do is we ask EFF to divide the entire internet into the good internet and the bad internet. And then you can sign the good internet will make it happen, right? There's lots of spam fighters and the trusted computing people in 2002, you know, who've been making these proposals forever. And, you know, the, the solution to the internet that starts with one, find someone with infallible judgment to put them in charge. It's, it's not great, but at least these fiduciaries are like regulated entities that they're not, they're not just someone who appoints themselves God King. You know, we already have the fiduciary who decides who can use Facebook. That fiduciary's name is Mark Zuckerberg. He's a very bad fiduciary. And so it, we, we might be able to replace him with someone who's a little more accountable. In the European Union, the DMA and the DSA contemplate uh, less robust degrees of interoperability. The, the Competition and Markets Report out of the UK has little bits and pieces of this, although they, they also fall short of, of even Warner's mark. But uh, imagine that we had these um, uh, mandatory interfaces. It still poses another problem, right? It doesn't solve the problem because Facebook is not incentivized to maintain those interfaces as robust ways to compete with Facebook. In fact, Facebook's first choice is that nobody would compete with Facebook. I, I, I think that anyone from Facebook who shows up and says, no, 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 we welcome all competition. We hope that if we're not the best service out there, someone else takes over from us, should be treated with enormous skepticism. That's, that's not the way most firms operate. 
And it's really not the way Facebook has historically operated. Just look at Mark Zuckerberg's memos to his CFO when he acquired Instagram and said basically, hey, it looks like Instagram is better than we are. We should buy them so people can't leave us and end up over there, right? Um, and, and so there is this possibility that Facebook would subvert the mandate that although these APIs are really powerful today or presumptively powerful, only Facebook really knows how well they work on their backends, um, that they might not be tomorrow, that you could imagine a different way of constructing those data flows so that Facebook could keep Instagram integrated with it, but would disaggregate uh, uh, those, those federated services that join Facebook. And there's precedent for this too. You know, back in 2012, the voters of Massachusetts passed a uh, ballot initiative with an overwhelming majority to force the, the automakers to allow independent mechanics to read the diagnostic information off of the wired networks inside of cars, the CAN bus. Uh, the automakers had been subverting the CAN bus. They'd been moving that data uh, into encrypted forms and, and generally making it uh, uh, low quality so that it was harder to get your car fixed in an independent mechanic and you could be corralled into getting your car fixed by the automakers who can monopolize the service, charge you above the odds for it. And, and most importantly, and maybe least appreciated in these right to repair questions, the automakers could decide when your car was unfixable, had to be retired, and you would have to buy a new car from them. And so base daters, they, they voted for this. The automakers had to accede to it. There were some challenges, but eventually they said, fine, we will expose our wired interfaces. And we're also gonna retool our cars so that all the good stuff happens on the wireless interface. And, uh, and, and that's not covered by the mandate. And it wasn't. And it wasn't until this year, last year, 2020, that we got a new ballot initiative with another commanding majority that forced them to expose that wireless interface as well. Because subversion is fast. Market-based subversion is fast. They can retool for next year, uh, but regulation is slow. It takes a long time for lawmakers to investigate what's going on, do the fact-finding, hear the appeals, and finally decide that they're going to do something to address that subversion. So even if we can imagine a kind of optimal solution where Facebook was forced to expose these uh, uh, interfaces where we had a robust privacy law and anti-harassment law that determined the contours of who could connect to it and what remedies people would have in the event that there was something bad going on there, we still wouldn't have something that was durable. We, we, we should expect that it would collapse pretty quickly as Facebook subverted it. So what could we do to make it uh, unsubvertible? What could we do to change the equilibrium so that it was in Facebook's interest not to mess with it? That's where I think adversarial interoperability comes in. That's, that's when you plug one thing into another thing without permission. It's not when you have a mandate to do interoperability, you follow a standard. It's when someone just figures out how to plug something into your service. Like when Steve Jobs paid some engineers to reverse engineer Microsoft Office so he could make iWork suite so that you didn't have to give up your Mac in order to read the documents that came from your, your uh, friends who used Windows, and you didn't have to use Microsoft's version of, of Office for the Mac, which was the most cursed piece of software Microsoft ever produced, where if you were dumb enough to open a document with it and then save it again, no one would ever be able to read it again, including you. And so that adversarial interoperability, or at EFF, we call that ComCom, competitive compatibility, because it's, uh, it's very hard for people to pronounce adversarial interoperability. Uh, particularly our friends uh, in, in Germany uh, really struggle with it. Listening to Germans try to say adversarial interoperability is like listening to Germans try to say the word squirrel. It's funny for a little while, and then it makes you feel bad about yourself. So now we say ComCom or competitive compatibility. And competitive compatibility shifts the equilibrium. Imagine if um, there was a right for competitors of the automakers 
to reverse engineer the messages that went over that wireless bus as soon as the, the automakers switched to the wireless. Imagine if they were shielded from liability under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, Section 1201 of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, uh, trade secrecy rules, um, Massachusetts very infamous uh, non-compete rules, and so on, so that they could, um, they could just reverse engineer it and make an interoperable product. Well, this would plunge the automakers into a kind of never-ending, unquantifiable guerrilla warfare, where they would have to uh, retool and retool again and retool again to exclude subsequent versions of this tool. Um, every time they did it, they would mess up their own mechanics. Uh, their customers who go to the mechanics would would blame the automakers for having messed with this tool. You know, halfway through their repair, it stops working, and the and the mechanics would be sure to let them know who was responsible for it. And ultimately, what could end up happening is that tool, which might be made by a couple of smart MIT kids, would end up um, uh, creating a secondary market, not just for repair, but for diagnostic tools and for uh, full service that would make the automakers themselves less central to the maintenance of their own cars than they are today. And that could also be the thing that stays Facebook's hand. If the thing that, that Facebook had to confront if they broke a mandatory API was that suddenly there were bots and scrapers and reverse engineers who were working on allowing the users who'd left Facebook and wanted to talk to their friends to maintain those connections, Facebook would face unquantifiable risk. Now, uh, I'm going to wrap up here because I want to hear from Daphne, but I'm going to say briefly how I think we could get to that limitation of liability. We don't have to uh, reform all of those laws, although I think we should reform all of those laws to get there. You could imagine lots of other things. Like you could imagine that, um, uh, for example, Facebook is facing antitrust investigations today. Those antitrust in investigations will almost certainly end in a settlement. One of the things settlements can do is impose a special master who says, look, if you ever want to invoke copyrights, uh, anti-circumvention clauses, or cybersecurity law, or, or any of these other regimes that are used to block interoperability and, and undermine competition, you can do it, but the special master has to sign off on it to make sure that you're not deploying these laws in anti-competitive ways. And again, you insert a measure of democratic accountability into the service. So I think this is how we, we get a, a robust system where we have uh, the quantifiable risk that Facebook faces, which is exposing those APIs and taking their lumps and competing, and the unquantifiable risk of guerrilla warfare that just pisses off their users and absorbs ever larger amounts of their engineering talent to no good purpose that only forestalls the moment at which the regulator catches up with them and makes them stop doing it anyway. And that if we do this, we can lower the switching costs. And when we lower the switching costs, we neutralize the network effects. And when we neutralize the network effects, we can create the self-determination that I think all of us want. Thank you. Reimagining the Internet is hosted by me, Ethan Zuckerman, and produced by Mike Sugarman, who also composed this music. Follow us at publicinfrastructure.org to learn more about what we're up to at the Initiative for Digital Public Infrastructure, and please subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening to it.